Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Blacks. Wildly, deliciously organic. A rich, smooth and truly delicious chocolate experience. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Well, we had a brilliant big night in a couple of weeks ago with the former state pathologist, Professor Mary Cassidy, who spoke to Roisin Ingle about her extraordinary career and her gripping book, Beyond the Tape. It was a side of the Scottish professor that many of us probably haven't seen before, and as well as a bit of a gory talk about maggots and some such, she gave us some fascinating insights into how to emotionally detach from death how she coped with being a famous face in Ireland and in this clip you'll hear now her surprise at the Irish preoccupation with death i come from a catholic background of course an irish catholic background but the scottish attitude is very presbyterian really and so you don't talk about death you know it, it happens and you just go over it you know move on you know we'll, we'll deal with it and that's fine but you know we don't discuss it and you don't go to anybody's funeral unless you're invited it's invites only you know so it's close family friends neighbors maybe a push depends on how the well they got on and that's it you never see a stranger at a funeral if you do somebody will go up and say excuse me what are you doing here so when i came to ireland this fascination you know as you say death notices everybody was talking about it everybody's talking about everybody dead my secretary would first thing in the morning be going through oh i might have to take wednesday off and i go why oh there's somebody dead in roscommon and i go and with were you close to them no i don't know who they are but they were just about two streets down so i need to go and i'm going really really so i it really perplexed me when i when i came at first it's hard to believe that we've almost come to the end of our second season of big nights in which we started during the first lockdown remember that The sixth and final event will happen this Saturday, December 12th, with the wonderful Olivia O'Leary, an authentic national treasure. So you are all in for another treat of an evening. If you haven't got a ticket, remember you can still get them on irishtimes.com forward slash big night in. Keep an eye on our Instagram too, as we'll also be giving away some tickets. Now, for today's episode, we're bringing you a conversation I had with Somali Irish activist and one of the world's foremost campaigners against female genital mutilation, Ifra Ahmed, and the filmmaker Mary McGuckian. They came on the podcast to talk about A Girl from Mogadishu, a powerful and inspiring film they've made together, based on the true story of Ifra, who fled war-torn Somalia in 2006. And you'll just have to trust me when I say that while the subject matter is profoundly depressing, the film is not only uplifting but often a joy to watch. 
But during a traumatic medical examination Ifra underwent when she was seeking asylum in Ireland, it was discovered that she had experienced horrific mutilation as a victim of FGM. Ifra has now taken her trauma and turned it into a force for change, becoming a world-leading campaigner against it. I spoke to Ifra and Mary about the film, about Ifra's childhood in Somalia and how she became an FGM activist. But I began by asking to explain how it felt to see her own story being played out in the film. Ifra, I'm going to start with you because I want to know what it's like watching your story being played out in a movie. How does that feel? Um, from beginning, it's been a stranger, but, you know, I've been part of the during the shooting, so I kind of get used to being there. But first time when I watched, I remember... Uh, Mostly I cried because of my grandmother. So um, it was strange from the beginning. Yes, yeah. You know, Ifra, quite often in these questions and answers you see in interviews and newspapers, they ask, who would you like to see playing you in a movie? <laughs> Were you happy to see yourself being played by that gorgeous actress? Yeah, and thanks to Mary McGuigan because, you know, I had the opportunity to meet her before I actually, before she even played me. So uh, it was great. And I remember I, we were having a dinner and chatting about things on human rights, asking questions. And, you know, she was talking about uh, being an activist on uh, Black Lives Matter and all that. And then last thing I asked was, do, I, do you have a boyfriend? <laughs> Does she? <laughs> so it's like chatting, you know, and then yeah. it's so quick. And then I said, oh, can we take a picture? Because, you know, for me, my campaign picture was the first thing that makes, you know, what it is. Just sharing photos of, you know, um, well-knowing, high-profile people. So, But I had quite fun with her, you know, asking questions about human rights and all sort of things. And she was very warm and... I felt that, you know, somehow we had some common um, things. And I say, you know what? And she kind of looked like me. And some people even say, oh, is she your sister? I say, no, but um, yeah. Well, actually, you know what? I actually went back to check the casting after I watched the film because I thought that at times it was you. You are quite alike. Anyway, Ifra, let's start with your story. Um, you arrived in Ireland in 2006, but let's have some sense of your background. You were born just outside Mogadishu and you grew up in a normal way, I gather. But at around the age of eight, you were subjected to this terrible procedure. Yeah, I, I was born actually in Mogadishu and because I... we. During the war, we just went and lived outside Mogadishu. So um, we lived a place called Garas Valley, where it's just uh, right outside Mogadishu. And yes, I was subjected on female genital mutilation in age eight. And female genital mutilation is a cultural pra- practice, which is um, every young woman uh, go through uh, when she turns eight or even when she's young than that. But mine... I was eight years old with another nineteen and other, another nine girls, and I remember, you know, when you in Holy Quran school, you talk to, uh, you know, the kids talk. It's like 
now young children going to school and talking about Christmas and, you know, talking about uh, Santa Claus and, you know, getting um, gifts from him and all that kind of things. We talked about um, Eid, which is a beautiful uh, celebration of Islam, where we believe that during the Eid, the best gift was getting new clothes and new shoes and something like that. But um, it's different when you look at our own families. Like during that time, most young girls are subjected on female genital mutilation. And again, some of the kids, they believe that it's uh, because it's Eid and every child believes that they should go through. So um, I was caught with uh, a, a man who was a medical practice, but... I always ask question myself, if it was a medical practice, why did he not understand female genital mutilation, the health consequence? But um, he never actually had and he never explained. But again, I must say that I, I'm lucky to be the one who's, who's alive today because we lost one girl during the cut because she was bleeding. And because of uh, she had, she could not wait for a long time. And somehow, maybe her kidney or something, she swallowed. And last thing we know, she was removed because we were all lying in one room in one big um, traditional mattress. And we all felt, I felt scared, like seeing a young girl was, was removed and things like that. So because of Somalia, FGM is practiced 98%. And that is why... Uh, my grandmother actually was the one who was holding me when I was cast and it it was normal for her. So now I know it's not, it's not something you look forward to. It is something that actually causes the death and also the consequence of bleeding and, you know, uh, losing your life for different ways. And if uh, part of the procedure is that this doctor... Uh, uses a, in your case, he used a scissors, but there was also a razor blade involved. Um, and he performed this procedure on eight other girls, I think nine other girls. And you have to lie with your legs tied together for 40 days. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I remember my grandmother was holding my two hands and I remember sitting on my legs and this man was... It's really, you know, I actually... I think last weekend is when I really remember the scissors cutting in my ears because it's just horrible and it's scary. So, so Ifra, we'll come back to that and, and your grandmother because that was actually one of the most moving parts of the, of, of the film. But sort of, so that happened. And then what happened to you? What happened to your life? Um, after, after on female genital mutilation, it's just, I mean, like... If I talk about when I get my first period, I that's when I can remember and talking, knowing and realizing there is something wrong. But uh, my grandmother, my grandmother never admitted that there was something wrong because maybe for her it was something normal to go through all her other daughters or other sisters or whoever. So I remember when I get my period first time, uh, my grandmother would actually tell me I should drink tea and I feel better. And I used to feel sick and I used to cry a lot and I had so much painful life. 
till I came to Ireland and go to doctor and, you know, finding all what happened, what, what my grandmother used to tell me to drink tea or something hot. But when I came here, going through a doctor and finding myself a peaceful way where I can reopen or card or, you know, going to hospital. I mean, like, in real life, you know, there are some parts on the movie, but in real life, I remember going to hospital in and out most of the time and meeting with people who doesn't really understand much about it, but would actually do... Because, you see, when they saw it, for the clitoris or, you know, sew it back, there will be some kind of uh, damage. And that damage, it can cause um, some, I don't know, uh, bleeding or blood clots or something. And when you have the blood clots, it becomes infection. And then, you know, every time I get sick, I have to go. And then I meet with different uh, medical profession. And then it's... It's been horrible, but I was so lucky because there was a lady who was my very good friend who understood on FGM and would go with me and before I meet with the doctor could explain. But you see, all this, it make me, it, it empowered me. So I make sure that all the shame I meet with doctors and all the things scary that I talked that not any other woman would go through. But same time as an activist even, I could go with someone being ashamed explaining that how I was scared or what happened to me and how it happened. And, you know, it's it's really hard to explain someone. Your private part was cut and saw it and you have some infection and things like that. So it wasn't easy, but um, it's just that is the reality and the fact that every woman who go through on female genital mutilation faces... But some of us are lucky to find a medical support. But Ifra, before that, um, back in, in Mogadishu, you, when you had the procedure, um, you then went through a few years, you had your period, and then at 15, you are married off to a man of 50? Yes. But you see, I didn't, because I think, you know, my grandmother, if she was alive, she could tell me how crazy I used to be when I was a kid and growing up, because... I was naughty. I was a little crazy child because I ran out and I just do whatever. And I, I never been happy for anything that I didn't want. And I remember, uh, you know, in Somali, we have this uh, face mask that traditionally women use. And when I was a kid, when I see the sisters or neighbors, girls, they use their face, I could steal it and put it on my face. And my grandmother, that is when she find it, I was very strong and tough to say no. So when I was uh, forced to marry somebody older, I never wanted and I just pack off and I just, you know, fight back. And I didn't want it. And that's it. And I just been running around like crazy person. In the film, Ifra, it begins with you basically fleeing from the military. Obviously, there's a war going on. There is savage uh, activity by men with guns. You're raped by several men, I think. The sum of your experiences, it's almost impossible to, to process. So just tell me a little bit about that before you 
got to Ireland. You set out for the US, uh, but you ended up in Ireland. But tell me a little bit about that experience before you got the ticket to Ireland. Well, you know, Somalia has been a war over 30 years and it's been a civil war. And because of the civil war, that military being powerful in the country and um, the man with a gun, they could do anything. And like, you know, I never wanted my own daughter to find out on social media or, or internet that her mother being raped and, you know, she's born in Ireland and things like that. But the reality is that it, the rape and all that is something was happening to every woman. And for me, sharing my story, I wanted to protect more women that it happens to them. So I actually... Yes, I was raped, but I really want to move on and I don't want to look back on that. Yes. Um, And I can understand that's a huge part of your survival mechanism, I think, is to not dwell on the past, but to look to the future. Uh, But nonetheless, it's a memorable part of the movie. But so so things, so your aunt in Minnesota helps you out here, Ifra, and arranges passage for you to what you think is going to be America. But you end up in Ireland. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, you see, every refugee is look for better life and look for a better place to go. And you have no right, I mean, like you have no choice where to go when it comes to smuggling or when it comes to somebody's taking you or some, somewhere who you bathe or who have, have been bathed. So for me, I don't know, I, I, would, I was thinking that I was going to go to my auntie and live with my auntie or whatever. But coming to Ireland has now actually shown me how lucky I am to end up in Ireland where I feel home and where I feel that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a part of the society because um, first time when I came, it was not how I am now because it was called, it was um, a different language and all that, but now I feel it's home and everybody who complain about um, Donald Trump or, you know, their own country about wearing a scarf or anything, I say move to Ireland. We welcome you. So, so, so you, I, Mary, can I talk to you for a second about that? Because one of the most upbeat parts of the movie, and, and I want to assure people listening here that actually there's a lot of it that is upbeat and it's, 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 it, it deals with the trauma in a way that's bearable, if you like. But one of the things that did surprise me a little bit was the very wonderful welcome and kindness accorded to Ifra when she arrived in Ireland. She arrived with, on a fake passport. She was a minor. So tell me a little bit how you dealt with that in the movie. You know, my job as a filmmaker was to facilitate the storytelling, but the story is Ifra's. And so, you know, Ifra probably could speak better to this than I could, but my understanding from, you know, the, the, the very detailed and courageous testimony she's given to the world and and to me as a filmmaker to facilitate a part of that experience, and if you could speak to this better than me, is that just by virtue of your age, I think partly, and the and whatever the stars above were looking down on you, that your experience was very specific. So you're always very positive about that experience, aren't you? Your initial I mean, I know it wasn't easy and we maybe have sugarcoated it slightly for the sake of the film, but it just seemed like one issue too many to bring in, which is not in any way to uh, undermine what we know is some, a very difficult experience for most refugees arriving in Ireland. But if I think your experience, you've always been very positive about it. 
Well, you see, well, I I adopted the Irish culture and I adopted everything, and that's how I felt that you know positive about it because you know every every person who comes as a refugee they should learn the country they're in, and I I invited myself to integrate to the society and the community, and that's why I see the positive and I see nothing on negative because you know. Um, I get lot. I've been nominated a lot of different awards, and people who nominate for me are Irish. People who seen my work on media, people who seen my work on TV, people who seen my work on social media. Those are the people who nominate, or people who hear from me one another. So, you know, um, that is why I think for me, I would say that is you know the positive way of thinking. And yeah, I mean like. That is the reality, I mean. That is the reality of Ireland for me. Well, it's actually very reassuring, I must say, because it is, it is, it is just a lovely catalogue of kindness that you appear to experience, Ifra. A very moving part of the film is when you, as part of the processing of your, your asylum application, you undergo some medical examinations. And this is how it's discovered that you've had FGM. And even though it's, it's not graphic in the movie, but it's very clear that the medical people are quite alarmed by what they see. But you kept saying, no, this is not an injury. Um, you weren't aware then, apparently, that you had been so badly damaged, really, I suppose. No, because you see, this is a cultural practice and it happened to every, as I say, from beginning that a young kid one day, actually Christmas come in, they celebrate on getting Christmas gift and things like that. And that is how we see in Somalia. But you wouldn't know till you become a woman, till you actually became a woman, you have your period or you actually, even when you're a child still, you will be damaged because... Some of the girls, they might have a kidney failure even while they were still 10 to 12 years old. So for me, my realization, it was when I get my first period. But my grandmother, she never made us to understand any of it. So it was just normal for me till I come to Ireland and I was told that I should do a smear test which is it's not normal in my own culture that women, uh, young girls who are not having babies should go through a smear test. So for me, it's going through a smear test is one, I remember s- sitting there and people asking, the ladies asking what happened, how you get injured and also, and that's, I felt that this is not injured, it's my culture, is um, you know, then explaining about female genital mutilation. And I remember, they talking about finding different way of using to actually get the test. So that is, I felt, you know, that's when I felt that we need to actually speak out and we should do something about it. Yeah. Now, one of the, again, another very, very moving part of the film is when you go back to your, your, your Somali sister's let's call them in in the in in your in your home and you ask them about their experiences of fgm and one of them tells you about the three feminine sorrows tell us about that what what were the three feminine sorrows it's just because you know uh, sitting with the girls in 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 the um, asylum centers and just discussion about 
our own personal experience and learning from one another how each of us go through on female genital mutilation, even though we had in different levels. For example, I remember one girl talking about how she was scared with a uh, kind of a broken glass, like very shy, very sharp knife, something stone and she was not so it back, but she was actually used some kind of very traditional stuff. And for us to share a story our grandmothers or, you know, the old people talk, sharing on is a common goal of understanding how women have gone through on female genital mutilation. Mm. And the three feminine sorrows, Ifra, are circumcision. And during the marriage, night of the wedding, and then also birth, and then uh, cutting. Yes. Um, it's, it's, um, so what's extraordinary, Ifra, is that at that point, you began, as young as you were, to become an advocate for all the girls that this has happened to, the girls it was going to happen to. You became a voice. And I just can't begin to imagine where you got that strength from. Tell me about that. that how you, did you become angry or did you just decide, I can't let this continue? What were you thinking then when you decided I'm going to speak out? I get really angry. I get angry because you can imagine coming to Ireland and going to hospital and then you were told that um, you are checked on HIV AIDS and different diseases and then you actually treated in different way and then you go back where you live with another refugees and they all talk about their experience and that is something it's not accepted and for me understanding more how damaged it was that is when I felt that I have to meet within the Somali community and understand more why this is happening and I get angry because I meet with the Somali community where we discussed all about uh, going through on female genital mutilation and some of the women going through caesarean when they have the baby and then if they have second or third baby, they are told that you cannot have the fourth child or anything. And then I see the ignorance of some of the men saying that if I don't cut my daughter, I will not have the the bride price. And that makes me really so upset because we know there is a problem and this problem, somebody have to speak out. Somebody have to break the silence. And I seen the other girls, they say, no, we can't speak out. And then I say, I cannot let happen what happened to me, a girl who are born and raised in Ireland. Because if I didn't speak out, maybe today we will have many girls who have said that I was born in Dublin and returned to the hospital. I go through female genital mutilation and this is cultural practice. It happened my own, my mother's uh, nature. So that is why I wanted to make sure that young girls who are born and raised in Ireland not experience what I have experienced, what many women like me have experienced. I want the girls in Ireland, they to live free as other young girls who are born, who are the Irish citizens. They are the citizens of Ireland and they need the protection. And that is my strain that saying, I want to be the voice, not the victim. Because I felt for me, talking my story over and over again, crying all the time, and getting all the anger on me, I will never protect a girl. But I said, if I keep my anger and keep fighting, I will protect the girls who are at risk today and who are actually, as you know that, 
Now even we have FGM legislated in Ireland and there was a first case family who was brought in into justice. So imagine if I didn't speak and share my personal experience, how many more girls today would be the victim of the female genital mutilation? And how many girls would today, after age 15, would say I was going through cultural practice called female genital mutilation? Because if you're instrumental in having, having a, a law introduced in Ireland to ban FGM, um, and that's very important. But one of the things I was surprised to see was that it, whereas it's, it's the constitution of Somalia bans FGM, there is no legislation to punish offenders. And I know you've been working very hard at that. How is that going? Well, you see, the Somali, the problem we have is that each time, every four years, we have a new president or new administration. And then when there's a new administration, you have to start it all over again and campaign. So we had a promise by the former government of Somalia, where the former prime minister signed one million signatures that been signed people around the world who cares about women and girls' rights. And then the Prime Minister actually promised he will actually legislate FGM in Somalia. We were very close the time to legislate FGM in back in 2017. But it didn't happen that government to last another four years. So now there are new administration where we still Law, through IFRA Foundation, we are lobbying and, you know, fighting to bring the legislation and raising awareness through the religious leader and media and the community. Mary, um, obviously IFRA is an extraordinary person. I can see what drew you to the story. But there, she's been involved in documentaries before. But you saw, you saw the potential here for something else. Tell me, first of all, how you met and how this came about, this movie. Well, we met first uh, at, at an event that around the UN, in uh, uh, which was intended for young emerging filmmakers. So, um, in before the Cannes Film Festival a few years ago, and I was aware of Ifra and her work, but I hadn't. I saw her in the distance in this group, and we always tell the story. I went up to her because she didn't stand up with all the other fabulous female filmmakers from Africa to pitch her movie. And said, uh, uh, well, and are you one of the filmmakers? And she said, no. And I said, oh, where are you from? And she said, from Condra. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> gosh, <laughs> it like that. Or say Drum Condra, for however you say Drum Condra. Um, and at that point, you also had a few friends from Cork. So there was a bit of a Cork accent coming through. And so trying to be overcompensatory, I said, well, were you always from Drum Condra? Anyway, and so it emerged. So that's how and where we met. And it became clear, and I think there was a genuine desire for document for the UN to be have somebody tell if her story, but they were thinking more of a documentary. And as you know, Ortiz had already done a documentary on Ifra. Um, I said, look, that's not what I do. But you know, what what I suppose you know, if Ifra is a compelling, you're in front of me, so I don't want to be talking to you in the third person or in front of me on the Zoom. Um, but you know, when you're looking for a story for a film, apart from a great story, you know, to me, film narrative is character driven and if it's an incredible, compelling and charismatic character. And it was a challenge to try to tell the story that if it's shared with you again and has shared with the world and it takes great courage to share that story. But the challenge was to try to tell it in a way that was not kind of 
doling out the medicine or in any way objectifying or sensationalizing the issues, but at the same time not shying away from them and then trying to find an underlying thesis that would be in some way empowering. And IFRA is very empowering with... So we fundamentally, I think we decided, IFRA, didn't we, that what what the film would be about would be the power of testimony. IFRA, it, 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 that, that is most certainly the case. It, it, is, it, is, it is about the power of testimony. Were you, were you very fir- firm about that view of, of what the film should be? Yes, because I was part of during the shooting and making sure everything to be correct. And uh, for example... The dresses and how I talk, how I say, what I do. It's, it was actually, I know it was somebody doing the acting, but I was making sure that she was doing as I, you know, the way I am. So it was, I was part of it and I was really um, telling giving my task many everything that how I was doing in, in Ireland and how I find my voice and how I become uh, smuggling, you know, finding every politician on the street or even going to the parliament. Every detail. I mean, one thing people who know Ifra know is that it, it never seems that she wears the same outfit ever twice. So you can imagine the costume department. And if we're teaching everybody how to put the scarves on, I remember you were doing lessons for all the... And Asia was learning the headscarf thing and you do it in 26 seconds and Asia's first attempt was about four minutes. So we had to get that down, (laughs) that kind of thing. Amazing authenticity. Amazing authenticity. And Ifra, when, when, did you find it annoying at all? Was it irritating having to sort of get into such minute detail? (laughs) And some, some of it, actually... One day I remember the the cash the, the lady who was making the clothes, she brought it a very heavy pl- I would say it was a curtain, and she gave the actor Asia and she said, Wear this and I get so annoyed and I say, That is not me, I don't dress like this, I don't want this shit. <laughs> and Mary came, I remember saying you have to do what Ivra says because this is her. And I think I was a um, little too bossy about when it comes my own creation, fashion of how I dress and how, uh, how I wear this scarf and wearing too much earrings and makeup and all that. But I was more concerned oh. about the scarves because I love color. Well, well, Mary, the funny thing is, it, it, it actually looks... That, that, that probably explains why the movie looks beautiful at times. I hope so. I mean, we, an awful lot of this is... You know, we had an incredible crew on it. A wonderful designer I've worked with often, Emma Pucci, and Michael Lavelle, the cameraman, you know, who, who agreed that we're making a... You know, we took the essence, tried to take the essence of IFRA. I called it the three Vs, that it, vers, verisimilitude, victoriousness and valediction. And that that we should, you know, she, he called it pretty gritty, I think, you know, that it should be real. But st- but Ifra is beautiful and everything around and about her is beautiful. And this is a very positive. I mean, they often say one of the slogans around the elimination of FGM campaign is born perfect. Every girl is born perfect and or born beautiful. And so we wanted to, to it, it seems like a contradiction in terms, given the issues. But we wanted to see if we could get that to work on the screen. 
I think it is one of the most triumphant aspects of of the movie is that it does look so beautiful and and the, there is the, there is movement and and flashes of light and color and joy um, and I just want to repeat that over and over to listeners that this is this is not a downbeat movie the victoriousness absolutely comes through and and it ends on a wonderful note but Mary tell me it, it's not that easy to get a movie off the ground that uh foreign about women was was that a, was that a challenge or were you were you able to do that for- it was a challenge absolutely and and as ifra would tell you we were we were con- you know i was constantly disappointment managing it, it, it you know it, we're we're at a stage in the independent film industry where the industry i grew up in has has really effectively dissipated um it's almost impossible to raise funds for films without uh non-industry money for example some equity participation but but we were just at the beginning of the time and Screen Ireland had a lot to do with this, where there was a real consciousness of getting behind female voices, inclusivity and diversity in the industry and supporting films for and about women. So you don't, in an Irish context, I think you don't get more inclusive or diverse than a single character narrative about an Irish woman with Somali heritage. And they were really phenomenally supportive. Um so I had said I wouldn't make another movie because I didn't feel the industry could was 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 the industry I, I grew up in, as I say. But in any event, we, we, we got there. It had its challenges, but we got there. Yeah. And Mary it was filmed in Ireland, Belgium and Morocco. So it was obviously a fairly expensive undertaking, I suspect. Well, it was certainly it was a complex co-production. Um, and, you know, you write a story because we were writing a story that was based on Ifra's life story and inevitably... You know, when you go back to your script and think, now we have to make this and how do we shoot war scenes in Somalia and European Commission scenes in Brussels and all of the rest of it. It was a, it was a bit of a production. It was very demanding, <laughs> but yeah. we had a great crew and we found ways to do it. Great partners in Belgium. Um, and, and because of the nature of IFRA and, and her, her campaign and what the film was about, there was a phenomenal amount of support. You are listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Blacks. Wildly, deliciously, organic. Chocolate to savour. And if you, you do the narration in the movie. Well, her character does. It's not Ifra herself. No, people do. That's, that's an extraordinary thing. People think it's really Ifra, but it isn't. It, it's the character. This is actually extraordinary because I did assume it was you. Um, and at, at times, as I say, I questioned whether you were the whether you were the actor, the, the star. I had to sort of remind myself again and again. But if in terms of, of, of where where you're going now um, and what the, the, the future of of the campaign, you're now a gender advisor to the president of Somalia um, and that's difficult because, as you say, the administration keeps changing. But you've you've got answers. I mean, do you feel in yourself that you have that you have moved on in terms of your own experience? Have you been able able to forgive, for example? And uh, no, because I have a time that I feel that it shouldn't happen to me at all. But um same time uh, I want to help other women and girls and especially those beautiful girls who are going to be born and who are born 
So the anger is still there, but I want to move on to do better for the society. And to do better is to lead my voice into a, a powerful testimony like Girl from Mogadishu and use that powerful to educate leaders, stakeholders, and also the community. In this way, every woman like me who have been through such trauma can move on and do better. Because you see, when you keep the anger on you and you just don't do anything about it, it's when you do nothing and your voice never be heard. But when you think that you can move on and you can do better, it's when you can make a difference and educate the community and use your testimony and powerful story to make a difference for the society. Now, if I can see the challenge, um, because it's so embedded in the culture and in, in a sense that that's crystallised in your grandmother, uh, who you obviously loved very much, but you wanted her to answer the question, why? Um, and initially that was quite hard to get her to talk about it, but she did tell you in the end. What did she tell you? Um First of all, I want to say, I want to say, imagine you sit with your friend who is a journalist and you give an interview and he wants to write an article about you. And then all over he stopped the recording and then you're having a tea or coffee and then you're telling a story. You know what? I am going to Somalia and I want to ask my grandmother, why did she do it? And I really want to know what in her mind that she cut me or cut my mother or my sister or my cousin or my auntie or everyone. And here it is, the journalist finding very interest to say this word and then my grandmother know it. So my point was to understand why this culture was so strongly believed. My grandmother or her mother or her, you know, why this was going on over 100 years. Why my grandmother, even if she knew there was a problem for her to give birth or even her other daughter's uh, to give birth was uh, difficult for them, but why did she continue to do something to us? So I, I, I remember first time she rejected me. And, you know, I say, my grandmother, I love her so much and God, God rest her in peace. But first time she refused me to go near her. And what she said to me was, I know you're here, ask me the question. And that made me really upset because... I haven't seen my grandmother for a long time and I grew up with my grandmother and I wanted she to understand. I go back because now I have my Irish passport and I want to see my grandmother because we don't know who will go first or not. So then it takes time for her to come around. I I had little money, I give it to her and then we start talking stories and why FGM it happened and why did she do it. And then it's when my grandmother explained that uh, she was born in a village and she was growing in that area. She had the better, like, she had the life we don't have. Because even I grew up a war, she believed my grandmother that we grew up at least in a city where you have more understanding, but she come from in a village where she have to do is got marriage very age, very young age and becoming a housekeeper and cooking food and knowing nothing about, you know, writing or reading or anything. Only she knows is to understand how to uh, grow family and raise a family. 
So in this case, my grandmother actually sit with me and explain all that cultural and life she grew and where she was born and all that. And to, it came to the end where grandmother said that because all others has been cut and that is why now it was your time and you were cut. And my grandmother, I remember she said to me, because you see, I could not explain that I was standing my own voice fighting for it. But she already knew that I I talked about her and I say, I'm going to ask why did she cut? So I tried to convince her, you know, I wanted just to understand why it was happening. So to the end, my grandmother explained her own culture and belief and how people in her age grow at the time and gone through on female genital mutilation in different levels. So at least she felt that I was cut in Mogadishu and I was cut in different levels because I wasn't cut with uh, woods and, you know, I wasn't stick with something very traditional. So then I I felt that, you know, I understood, but I wanted my grandmother at least to hear more on my campaign and raising awareness. So she can come to the point where she can be very proud. Even little things she heard, she was, you know, forgive. And she was very happy that what I was doing. But I wanted she to see more. And next thing I want was next time I was going back to Somalia to explain about the movie. But it, she didn't actually um, stay long. So that was also uh, very sad because... I feel my grandmother did not have the opportunity to know the movie and my grandmother did not have the opportunity to understand that I never I never um plan my grandmother what she did to me but I am just telling my story that my grandmother do cut me but maybe she wasn't she was ignorant and she didn't understand but now I want she to know that I am not blaming her and I am telling this story because I want the girls not to be cut. So I want my grandmother to know that I love her so much and I'm telling my story because I want to protect the girls and I want you to understand that I will never blame her on public or I will never say anything on her that because she explained she never understand. So... I want to do better. I wanted to tell my story and tell how my grandmother, how she proud of me, what I was doing. And also she explained to me that because she was cut and that's why she cut everyone. But I really wanted she to see the movie and I wanted to tell her that, you know, I'm telling the world that my grandmother, she was really a good woman and she wanted she wanted, you know, to understand because it happened to her and she didn't understand why it happened and that's why she cut everyone she did. Ifra, the, the challenge as far as I can see from the movie is there is a lot of, 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 of masculine, violent masculine behaviour, um, some immovable male attitudes um, that seem to me to be the biggest challenge um how are you, how are you managing to deal with that what do you say to men um i just make them to understand because you know i have a, my father who sometimes do understand what i do but doesn't know really 
what I do exactly on campaign on female genital mutilation. So what I say to men is that they should actually protect women and girls from female genital mutilation. And they should, they are the people mostly we plan and say they are the people who are saying that girl who been cut are better than girl who are not cut. So I want them to change that attitude and find a way they can say whether it's cut or not cut, girls are beautiful. And that is God, how God met us. It's not that because we've been cut or mutilated make us any different. So I want the man to understand that the women they are marrying or the baby girl they having deserve to have a better life and they should treat that way. Ifra, tell us about your, your, your 2030 plan to, to, um, to eliminate FGM. Is that, are you, are you, have you, have you a sort of a, a year by year strategy or how is that working? Um, this is the United Nations and sustainability goal for 2030 to end the FGM. So Ifra Foundation, we are moving along with the United Nations 2030 to end FGM 2030 because now, uh, IFRA Foundation, we are in a very good position about uh, having a strategy and plan to uh, build with a partnership with United Nations and other organizations and have a um, plan which is coming up next year to have a DOT campaign. And I'm hoping that 2030, I don't want 10 years' time we are sitting here again talking about uh, female genital mutilation and how many girls have died on bleeding. I want 10 years' time to celebrate the victory of every woman like me who are the campaigners, who are the voice to make a difference. And Ifra, are you optimistic? Do you think you can end this by 2030? We are... Ho- <clears throat> yes, I mean, you know... Because of the cultural and traditional belief, it's really, I'm hoping that 10 years time I wanted to celebrate, not to actually talk about my experience or not to talk about younger have died, bleeded. I'm, I'm not, I don't want to talk about a 10 years old girl being married, forced marriage and having the night of marriage, she bleed to that. I want that young girls to be free from female genital mutilation. And I want that to happen in 10 years. And I want the leaders and stakeholders and everybody, in uh, the celebrities, everyone to speak out, how everyone is speaking out on um, HIV, AIDS and malaria and all other diseases. And if, if you succeed in 10 years time, what will you do then? What would Ifra like to do if she wasn't campaigning about FGM? I will sleep and rest. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think, you know, uh, when, that, when that time comes, I will just celebrate and tell stories how we all, all the fighters and leaders, how we made it end FGM globally. Well, gosh, I look forward to that day, Ifra. Mary, the, the movie... Uh, when can people see it? Where can they see it? Well, uh, you know, we're we're um, very fortunate that our, we, we've had to reschedule everything. We, the film must have been released last March um, in Ireland and the UK, so it is uh, due for release. However, the COVID restrictions allow from next Friday, the fourth of December. 
So it, it, we turned the IFRA Foundation premiere into a global virtual event, which is going on through the 16 days of activism. It started last night uh, in the UK and Ireland. It's going across America next week, all the way through Europe and Asia to East, West and East Africa. But from 4th of December, I understand that if there are cinemas open, that they have booked it around the country. Um, and to the extent that they're not open the film will be available online and for those who don't feel safe for going to cinemas and that that will continue over a period of time. So it won't be a short in for a week and gone kind of release. It, the film will, will, will reside in various locations around the country over the next few months, I believe. And how does one access it, Mary? So I think, for example, if you wanted to... Go, I know, for example, I, the uh, Irish Film Institute, if they're allowed to open next Friday, they'll be showing it in the cinema. And if they're not allowed to open, they'll be showing it on the online Irish Film Institute portal. Same with The Lighthouse has Volta. And various other cinemas, I think, who do believe they'll be allowed to open across the country, you'll just have to look out for it. It'll be very last minute, inevitably, because the, the restrictions lift is, hasn't been announced yet. Um, but I do believe that they that it'll either be available in the cinema or if it's your local cinema is closed or you don't fancy going, you can go online and find it at that cinema's portal. And there's a way of donating to the foundation as well, I think, through this, isn't there? There is also, it, well, there there is through the IFRA Foundation. Uh, the easiest way, to be honest, is directly to IFRA, the on the IFRA Foundation web, website, which is www.ifrafoundation.org. Excellent. And Ifra, aren't you due a long rest now? Don't you feel that you've done something really extraordinary by with Mary McGuckian? Isn't this a wonderful time? Yes. And I must say, because um, on uh, uh, last night was the opening of the 16-day activism for the movie, and we have been... Uh, all over social media, people sharing and everything. And this morning when I, when I woke up, I woke up with a lot of lovely messages, people around the world and telling me how much they appreciate to share my voice and all that. So it's been really emotional and also happy and exciting time for since last night. It's been really tough. And also, you know, seeing our Irish government and also sharing around with the posters and things like that. It makes me really proud to see even our president recognizing uh, my work and, you know, the, the story of a girl from Mogadishu. So, yes. Well, that's a very upbeat way to end, <laughs> to end this episode of the Women's Podcast, as is the movie. It ends on a very upbeat note. And I want to repeat, it really is a joyful movie in so many ways, but very enlightening. Ifra, thank you so much. Mary McGuckian, thank you so much. And good luck with the release. Thanks a million. Thank you for having us, Cathy. And that's it for today. Thanks to Ifra Ahmed and Mary McGuckian for speaking to me for this episode. This podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle, Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. That's it from me. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.